Hello and welcome to another episode of the House Think You Built podcast. As always, I am your host, Jackson Frank. Today, I am not on Green Room. We are behind the scenes. Uh, you are not listening to this live, of course. Um, but I am here with uh, Caitlin Cooper of Indie Cornrows. Uh, I'm sure if you're listening to my podcast, you're familiar with her work in some capacity. If you are not, absolutely check it out. Um, one of the best basketball writers out there today. Um, I learn a lot from everyone, but I always think like I learn a lot from you, Caitlin, when I'm reading your work, uh, not just about the Pacers, but about basketball in general. Um, but I appreciate you uh, taking the time today. And how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I haven't done a lot in the Sixers media space, so you get to hear some new voices today. The last time I think I was on a Sixers pod was on the Ricky like two years ago. That's when I peaked, I think. So. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate you coming on. I'm sure people will enjoy your voice. I've been trying to kind of get different perspectives on the Sixers situation because as much as I'd like to talk about the Sixers right now, they're in such flux that I can't I can't talk about lineups. I can't talk about what that might look like very much. It's all about bringing on people of different teams and talking about their teams and getting a little bit of insight about the Sixers. But um, I've done a lot of podcasting on, on the Ben Simmons stuff and the Sixers, but um, we're in a bit of a holding pattern until uh, until then. So uh, we'll talk about the Sixers toward the tail end of today's podcast. But today we're mostly talking about the Pacers, who are a, a pretty interesting team. I think uh, they're in an interesting spot, obviously. They hired Rick Carlisle after a down down year, whether it was some injuries, whether it was, you know, some troubles with Nate Bjorkren as a first-time head coach. But um, I think Carlisle is kind of the biggest change, of course, because he's, you know, one of the best coaches in the NBA and has been for a while. So um, I know you've done a lot of studying about kind of his teams and the X's and O's. You had a really, really fun thread throughout Patriots Summer League where you were, they'd run a play and you'd, you'd say, okay, look, you can see the exact same thing from the Mavericks a year ago, two years ago. Um, what are you most looking forward to with, with Carlisle in town? How do you think he can present an upgrade and, and how do you think he can kind of benefit this team's, this team on both sides of the ball? Right. So I think you first have to look at the defense because while Nate Bjorkren certainly had his faults, I do think that he did some decent things on the offensive side of the ball for the Pacers in terms of their shot profile. He had a lot more motion. There was more intricacy there offensively, but defensively is where they really went off the rails. I mean, a year ago, they were a top six defense under Nate McMillan and, and Dan Burke. Then the coaching change happens and their system changed pretty radically. Um just the amount of different types of schemes. I don't think that people that didn't watch the team regularly probably know exactly how gimmicky that defense was. Like, I know that I personally harped on how overboard they were with overs. People that watched, you know, the Pacers play the Sixers will surely remember that that was probably the only team that ran double drags 30 feet from the basket that had a player trailing over the top against Ben Simmons. But even beyond that, I mean, they're trying to mix in triangle and two, box and one, two, three. Sometimes they're switching up how they did the two, three with very unfamiliar lineups because of how many injuries they had and it oftentimes looked like they were just it was very underbaked and over aggressive all at the same time so it didn't really seem like units were very familiar with what their roles and responsibilities were within the zone I think some people think I'm anti-zone I'm not anti-zone defense I'm anti-zone defense when it doesn't seem like it fits the situation or necessarily who's on the floor at the time or that you've like practiced it more than once which and again in Nate Bjorkren's defense like there wasn't a lot most teams weren't practicing very much last year there wasn't a lot of time to be implementing like seven different defenses and that type of a season but um this the scheme itself i don't think necessarily fit the personnel all that well so then you go to summer league and while summer league i'm not going to say that is automatically what the Pacers are going to do 
I did write a piece that I thought was really interesting because you could hear the play calls through the, the game cast a lot. And you would hear Mike Weinar, who was their offensive coordinator for the Mavericks that came over and will be an assistant coach for the Pacers this year, routinely telling the guys who were covering the deep corners to be higher. So especially if this was out of a timeout or at the end of a quarter, they wanted them to be above their checks, essentially. So instead of like last year, the Pacers would be shrinking the floor. Traditionally, when you think of a team shrinking the floor, they're going to be sinking in into the paint. And this instance, you're all playing above your checks. The Clippers did this some against the Suns in the Western Conference Finals. You're playing above it, so you're kind of getting first mover advantage and impacting the ball even when you aren't guarding the ball, which for the Pacers, they don't really have a great point of attack defender. Like, that's a weakness for Malcolm Brogdon. So if you can impact the ball in that way, and especially in the lineups when Sabonis is at solo five, if Miles Turner's rim protection isn't out there, they, they needed to do more whether it is miles or Sabonis, they've had like the highest opponent rim frequency in the NBA. Like they were just sending way too much action to the rim, especially for a guy like Sabonis who has like the same size of wingspan as Malcolm Brogdon. Like that just wasn't going to be sustainable. So if they can deter some of that and stop funneling all of it to the middle, this, this type of scheme, you're going to see it more like they use switching, but the goal is to ultimately get it to the corners and contest those shots and be catching the cutters in a way that you didn't really see last year. I'm sure this is, sounds overly technical, but if people want to see it, they can, they can read the article about it. But um, I think the defense is where you have to start. I think that would be my number one answer. Mm-hmm. Offensively, like I said, I think Nate Bjorkren did a lot of good things, but the one thing that happened about midway through the season when they didn't have TJ Warren and Victor was traded and then they didn't have Karis LeVert, anytime they had just Malcolm Brogdon on the floor, there's really no other downhill options out there so teams started really ducking under against Malcolm and while Malcolm improved as a pull-up three-point shooter it was more or less like okay we don't want to deal with all of your motion so the easiest way to grind this to a halt and to take away what Sabonis can do in the short roll is we're just going to duck under against Malcolm Brogdon and live with whatever he does as a shooter Mm -hmm. so that took away that that a lot of times you know Sabonis's post-up frequency was a lot higher and that was in part part of it it wasn't like Nate Bjorkman had this huge stable of post-up plays because he just wanted to be posting Sabonis all the time it was like okay we didn't get anything out of that action and now we need to get a bucket somehow so we're going to go ahead and throw it to him in the post and so offensively I think Rick Carlisle kind of has a reputation as being a play caller and he does have some really intricate stuff that's smart and super sharp but at the same time the Mavericks did quite a bit with randomness last year. So while I wouldn't necessarily say that like, you know, a Spain pick and roll or like Princeton point offense is like some revolutionary thing that you're never going to see before. um, Like with Sabonis, it took about halfway through the season for them to be like, okay, maybe stop posting Sabonis on an Island against Rudy Gobert without running a split cut. Like it was like, we want to draw those fouls against Rudy Gobert instead of being like, okay, he's one of the best post passers in the NBA. That's a super efficient play type for him. Let's incorporate a little stuff that, you know, can really allow him to do that. So it took about halfway through the season. Then they only had like two or three variations and they ran them the exact same way every time. <laughs> and like, I don't have delusions of grandeur. I am, I am a armchair analyst when it comes to basketball, but I can tell you most of the plays that they ran and exactly how they were going to run them. So it became a little bit mechanical. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're going to get with Rick Carlisle, I mean, Malcolm Grobden kind of mentioned this on a podcast when he was on Adrian Wojnarowski's podcast that he said, you know, I think what Rick Carlisle is going to give us is structure because when you have too much structure, you become robots. And when you don't have enough, you can become too loose and too up and down. And, you know, at the end of the season, the Pacers were like second in the league in pace and were kind of playing. They weren't able to support that. Like every time they were taking quick shots, they were just giving up quick shots at the other end. So 
those are kind of the two main things that I look schematically, but I mean, I do think that there will be a certain amount of addition uh, by subtraction, just regards to everything that was going on behind the scenes with Nate Bjorken as well. So they bring in a little bit more experienced assistant coaching staff, hopefully do a little bit better with minutes management. And I think you get a decent upgrade there. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and never apologize for too much nuance. That's what I want this podcast <laughs> to be about. And if, as you said, if people are a little confused and need a visual, just go check out Caitlin's stuff. You can check it out on Twitter, check it out on any cornrows as well. But um, yeah, I think you mentioned kind of some of the faults on both ends by the end of the year. I, I obviously you watched every game or, you know, and more, a lot more than me, of course, but again, I thought it was really emblematic toward the end of the year was that regular season, one of the regular season games against the wizards where it was like, 145 to like 130 or something and the Pacers were flying up and down throwing 12 different schemes couldn't get any stops and all these different things it just felt like it just felt very discombobulated like there wasn't a lot it just it's it's a cliche but it felt like almost a pickup run honestly just with the oh, way yeah. like, just trying to adjust things on the fly they were getting up and down guys were uh, doing things but yeah the the fighting over screens against Ben Simmons obviously Sixers fans will know that I mean Ben had one of his better games of the year and that comeback win I think in December January yeah um and that was like i mean it kind of kick-started you know ben was in a funk to start the year and then um, the sixers came back and won that game without joel and a lot of it's because he was able to get downhill particularly in the first half because brogdon whoever else was fighting over those screens and um ben has his faults but if you're going to fight over screens he's big and strong and fast enough to to take advantage of that um he mentioned maybe some of the offense i'm, I'm curious you know how do you think specifically maybe he, he can, you know, Carlisle's arrival can benefit Miles Turner? Because I feel like he's a guy who has grown in quite a few different ways offensively. Obviously, Sabonis has as well. But um, what are you kind of looking forward to with, with Miles? Because I think there's this idea that he's kind of just a stretch big, but I think he's a little more than that. How do you think Carlisle will help maybe get more out of him than previous regimes have offensively? Right. I mean, I do think that some of it, at a certain extent it's going to have to come from miles himself. Cause again, like Nate Bjorker. And I think the one thing that he did that was good for miles last year is a lot of the stuff that the Pacers ran on the weak side triggered 45 cuts from miles. And he mm. had a really good sense for not spoiling spacing and the timing. Um, that was essentially the first thing they were trying to do around post-ups. The Sabonis was letting miles cut from the 45 until teams started kind of squeezing that a bit. Um, he did better just as the cutter overall and knowing where, if I'm going to play the four, where I need to be able to find my spots from. And then in the pick and roll, because they were running more through the sides, especially like with TJ McConnell, if Miles Turner was out there with a bench unit and TJ McConnell's running side action, like TJ is going to get to his spot and he has pretty good court vision to be um, creating stuff under the basket. So you saw Miles not be doing as much in the mid range as what was the case under Nate McMillan, where they were having him pop to there. So even though he wasn't hitting the three at a super high level last year, there is some value in the positioning and just having him stretch mm -hmm. back behind there. Um, in terms of Rick Carlisle, the one thing that I mentioned before the season started, I wrote a pretty long piece about, you know, that he was kind of more of a theoretical stretch big at this point in terms of like an actual big because of how teams guard him. like in the defensive perception, like even this year, I think only about 27% of his shots were contested and only about 11% of his shots were off drive. So in total, you're looking at about, you know, 35, 36% of his shots being contested the rest of the time that's kind of what the teams are willing to give up. They'll come off of him on the corner to, to help on a drive. Or if it's like a double drag, they're going to send both people at Sabonis and, and leave miles open behind the three. So if it's Rick Carlisle, and I've been wanting this for like three years and they did it with Kristaps Porzingis. So I think there's potential here for this to actually occur. I really want to them to establish miles as a trailer 
and, and the three-point line. Instead of having him run rim to rim, have him run arc to arc. Because I think if you can catch defenses on their heels and he can establish like, look, fake it till you make it. Act like you're a shooter and teams are going to more defend you like you're a shooter. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that there's a certain psychology to if a player is hitting shots in transition, that they're going to react to that a little bit more than in the half court when maybe that's, you know, what your defensive scheme is willing to give up. But um, Rick Carlisle did mention like the value of having guys take deeper threes. So I think you might see miles getting stretched out a little bit further to the 30 foot mark, like what you saw with Przingis. Um, and I think it's a little bit bit of a misnomer too, that all that the Mavericks did was run five out offense. I mean, they're going to run stuff that a loop action in Iverson. That's going to allow mm-hmm. miles and Sabonis to play off of each other. Some, some stuff out of chin where you could have Sabonis at one elbow and maybe miles slices down the other. Przingis did a lot of stuff off cuts that mm-hmm. I think could be expanded even more with miles. So I think there's more room for that to grow, but I also think it's a two way street. And at a certain point in time, like it's up to miles just to start making shots. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, I, I'm really excited to kind of see what Carla does with those two big because they're so, I think they have a lot of versatility in different ways. And I'm excited to kind of, I think, as you mentioned, I think Bjorkman did some good stuff with them, absolutely, especially early in the year when Simona got off to that awesome start. I know some of it was he was hitting a lot of threes and whatnot, but I like some of the different ways that Simona was used when they were mostly healthy. Um, you know, and kind of, you mentioned TJ Warren a little bit, you know, I think it was a week ago or two weeks ago, I think it was reported that he's going to continue to rehabilitate his foot. Um, unfortunately, um, really big bummer. He had such a good year and kind of was awesome in the bubble. We've barely seen him since, but what do you think this team is going to miss, you know, from TJ while he's out? I mean, it's not a guarantee he's out for the, you know, the entire, I mean, for not even a guarantee he's out for the regular season or anything like that, but it's not ideal that, you know, he's been dealing with this for such a long time now and we're, two weeks away from training camp and we're three weeks away from preseason. So what is this team going to miss as long as TJ is out? And then maybe on the optimistic side, like what are you curious to kind of see how TJ is used on both ends? Honestly, I think, you know, there's just, just kind of the, the absence of TJ and then maybe the opportunity once, you know, TJ is back and in the swing of things. Yeah, definitely a little bit of an ominous update to be mm-hmm. proactively saying that somebody's going to be out indefinitely three weeks before training camp starts, but hoping for the best there, but uh, to sound like a slam tweet, um, people forget that TJ Warren is a bucket. <laughs> he really, no, he, they, they do forget though, that. He's one of the more underrated isolated. I mean, Sixers fans, so young hung 53 on Ben Simmons head a, a month, a year ago. Um, oh, but yeah, yeah, really good isolation score at the very least. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the year, whenever they were kind of hemming and hawing about what they're going to do with Nate Bjorkman, like it was essentially like a love letter to TJ Warren and how much they missed him. Like talking about offensively, but also defensively, like you mentioned, like, I mean, midway through the season when they didn't have, like I said earlier, they didn't have another downhill score. You're starting Justin holiday and Doug McDermott. And both of them are very good role players, but you don't have the same offensive punch. Like I think that their offense overall would look better. They just didn't have as good of weapons available to them that are as, as diverse. So uh, just being able to reincorporate the fact that he can score at three different levels at a fairly decent rate. I mean, if somebody closes out, like Doug, Doug got better at leveraging off ball screens into drives, but I'm not saying that like, if he gets closed out on hard, that I'm going to feel good that he's going to like hit a pull up too. <laughs> TJ Warren's going to do that. But um, so that, but I, I mean, I really agree with what Kevin Pritchard said, like they missed him as a defender, I think more than what people thought they were going to, because 
I mean, I, Justin Holiday mentioned this, I think, in their exit interview. There's a pretty strong case that TJ Warren was their best on-ball defender, and that he isn't there. So, in games you're starting, Justin, like Brogdon more so under Bjorkren, which I understand because Brogdon's strength is not guarding at the point of attack with his defensive positioning and the fact that he could be flat-footed. They would shift him over to the wings and put Justin on point guards at times, which really weared on Justin as the season went on. But I think that that's a possibility that you could have done that with TJ was if he was available, but also just bigger wings in general. Like, you can look down a long list of you know Mikel Bridges had a career high against the Pacers Harrison Barnes had a season high against the Pacers OG Ananobi had a season high against the Pacers what you're saying up against Ben Simmons like and then they're just having to um, really dig deep for some pretty random lineups where you would see like Jeremy Lamb suddenly guarding Zion or Jeremy Lamb suddenly guarding Giannis or you know whoever they don't really have somebody to guard those guys now headed into this season like you, I think they're a little bit better equipped to weather that sort of a problem because at the end of last season, they found O'Shea Brissett who helped them out off the buyout market. They signed Tory Craig this summer who can certainly be thrown at various different types of wings. And then they still have Justin and, and Keelan Martin if they keep him around. So they're better equipped to weather some of that, but definitely last year it was like, yeah, they just don't have any way to really feasibly downsize with somebody at the four for most of the season. And then they just don't have anybody to throw at those types of matchups. But um, we'll see with him being out. I, I'm not sure exactly who they're going to bump up into that spot to fill that role. Probably either Chris Duarte or Justin Holiday, because I think Torrey Craig kind of more naturally slots in at a four in order to help them downsize. But that's probably where they look. Yeah, and I think you mentioned maybe they're a little better equipped weather to storm, but what you were getting at is the benefit of TJ is you don't, like, there's no trade-off, right? Like, you know, those other guys, you mentioned either Doug last year or, you know, Justin or these new guys, you kind of mentioned O'Shea, like, you're losing something, right? With TJ, right. like, he's one of your better offensive players. Um, and so if you if he's also one of your best isolation defenders, your one-on-one defenders, like, it's really nice to have that. And so, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a big bummer. I mean, he was so good two years ago um, and just a ton of, like, he shot almost 58% on twos, which is like a pretty ridiculous number for a perimeter base player. I know he's like a three slash four, but uh, that plus 40% from three, 61% true shooting, like pretty awesome scoring numbers. Um, and it, it, it noticed, I mean, Nick Millen is a, a good coach, but he wasn't the most imaginative offensive right. coach. You know, it's not like he was playing with Ty Lu or Carlisle or, you know, any of these guys who are really, really renowned for some of their offensive creativity. Um, but you know, you, I mean, you mentioned Duarte a little bit. There's been some reports, w- rumors about maybe uh, maybe Miles Turner comes off the bench, maybe TJ Warren comes off the bench when he's healthy. Like Duarte might start, Isaiah Jackson might start. What do you what do you make of some of these reports or rumors? Is it like how do you interpret them? Because it is kind of it just caught me off guard when I when I've read some of them over the past. I think it's been maybe two months or so since a couple of them came out. But what do you make of all this this stuff? Well. Yeah, I mean, to put it simply, it's kind of been all over the place. I mean, like you mentioned, like at one minute at the end of season presser, they're talking about, you know, how the complement, how the fi- how the five starters fit together and are complementary. And then there's reports coming out through various outlets that, well, one, one of the bigs might come off the bench and, oh, Malcolm Brogdon, you know, he's not at his best at point guard and. And they've looked at Lonzo Ball and then like two weeks later, it's, well, Karis LeVert's their top scorer and and Malcolm needs to play point to take that pressure off of, like, it kind of gets to a point where it's like, okay, which is it? And I don't know where all that's being sourced. Like, I'm not questioning the reporters at all. They're good Mm -hmm. at their jobs. But I mean, some of it's saying like, 
according to a league source. It doesn't always necessarily say a team source. So I don't know if this is coming directly from the Pacers, but if the plan is to stagger them, which I will say stuff that is coming directly from the Pacers, like general manager Chad Buchanan mentioned in a Q&A with Scott Agnes at Fieldhouse Files, the end of one of his quotes was essentially like, well, as you know, we have a unique lineup with two centers and, and that's going to test Rick Carlisle's creativity, I guess. And then there was like, ha ha in parentheses. So I don't really know what we're supposed to take from that. And then when Rick Carlisle was asked during a game during summer league about the roster, like, I don't know if he didn't understand the question or couldn't fully hear the question, but he was like, yeah, it's an interesting roster. Like there, there, there just wasn't a ton of enthusiasm here. So it's kind of difficult to parse. I think that's probably what media day is going to be for. But for me personally, if it's getting to the point where you need to bring miles Turner off the bench for this to be feasible, then it's time for you to make a decision and make a choice. Like then you should have made a trade and traded a big because bringing a center off the bench to make who's making $18 million at that particular position and the current state of the NBA just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Plus, in my opinion, you need to be able to have your best players on the floor at the same time. So yeah. if you don't feel like that's something that's really capable of being able to happen, then you probably should have made trades over the summer. If not, if you didn't think any of those trades were going to make you better and you're going to run back the same core, like I'm not opposed to that. I'm not fully committed to it, but I'm not opposed to seeing what it looks like because those five guys have yet to play a minute of basketball together. Mm-hmm. But if that's what you're going to do, then like, I guess be a little bit more excited about it is just from like a team packaging standpoint, I would, I would like to probably see a little bit more enthusiasm than what's been coming across with the Duarte thing. I kind of interpret that with TJ Warren as TJ Warren's entering a contract year. They obviously can't offer him probably what he's going to be able to make in free agency, depending upon how this foot goes. So my thoughts there were maybe that comes into being like midway through the season. If you're thinking, you know, we don't want to lose TJ for nothing. We don't feel confident in our ability to re-sign him like I just can't see you going straight into training camp and being like yeah yeah you know based off four summer league games we're gonna start Chris Duarte and I liked Chris and everything that he did in summer league that just feels a bit extreme to me and I don't really know why projections about Isaiah Jackson were being made with regards to Sabonis of something that's going to happen like two years down the road maybe and I liked what Isaiah did in summer league as well. But um, in general, most of the time when people ask me about the Pacers, I'm like, yeah, probably anything. Like you could tell me anything about them and I would probably believe it because this stuff's been all over the place over the last half year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And you mentioned kind of the teacher situation. I remember because you had kind of tweeted something about that report and I had followed up about it, about maybe the idea that like he could be available, but you probably brought the more nuanced take and the more insightful take that it's just, it's about the contract thing. Do you think that like do you think he's someone that they might like if they don't feel confident in their ability to retain him would be someone that that might be available at the deadline like how do you kind of see that I mean it's so tough to because as you mentioned that report or not that report but the injury update kind of we don't know we're going to see TJ Warren play again. right so how do you right. kind of view that because I think like I think the contract thing is interesting but I think that could also be tied to a a lack of you know full commitment not like a full commitment but like why, you know, what should we try and get something back for him if we're, if we're confident we're not going to retain him? So how do you kind of view that shaking out? Is there, is there potential that he gets traded somewhere? And I, because this is a Sixers podcast, they do need more isolation scores. So kind of how, how do you view that part shaking out? Because he's very good, but if they're not going to be able to retain him or don't feel they can, then maybe they look to move him. Right. I mean, my general sense is kind of even, and this, maybe this isn't fair. I mean, it's an outsider one, but even when Rick Carlisle mentioned that, like, Hey, it's an interesting roster. There weren't any specific names mentioned. It wasn't like, you know, a pecking order of who they see as like 
their you know top guys or their core guys so my general sense is they would be about open to anything if they thought i mean and that's true of every general manager but i especially think it with the pacers that like they're willing to see what this team can do and now that's put on the back burner once again because they have another one of their starters injured but i think they're willing to see it but if it doesn't pan out i wouldn't be surprised if everyone sands karis lavert because of just exactly how he came into being with the pacers mm-hmm. and the fact that he's brand new that they wouldn't be willing to listen to offers on those guys and there was reporting i know kevin o'connor from the ringer mentioned and i think somebody from the cleveland plain dealer reported that tj warren was available at the wing over the summer so whether that's actually the case i can't confirm for you but it, it wouldn't surprise me because of what i said like i mean i think you have to hope that you have an open line of communication there and tj has mentioned in the past like he's a pretty under the radar guy i think he doesn't mind being in a small market that doesn't bother him but i think you need to know like you know if he's going to be healthy are you committed to being here and if you don't have that general sense i do think you need to to plumb the market around the trade deadline. Cause I don't think that's somebody you just want to let walk out the door and you've gotten nothing in return. The Pacers aren't exactly a free agent destination. So. Yeah. And, and if that's the case, I mean, it goes without saying the Sixers should be absolutely one of the teams calling. I mean, they just, it's, they need more scoring. Like it's just, it's simple. And, and TJ also gives them some defense, especially, you know, it's, I mean, more than likely Ben will not be around. And so um, they've got some other good defenders, but it never hurts to have another you know, one-on-one guy around Joel and, and whatnot. So um, yeah, that, that all makes sense. And I, I really am kind of curious to see what happens with TJ because, um, like, I, I mean, you always want every player to help, but I, I just really want to see him build upon his awesome 2020 um, or 2019 20 season there. And, you know, it's just been a bummer. He had that such such a wholesome tweet about a month and a half ago where he was like, I played basketball and I had fun. And it was like, that's awesome. Like, I just, I, just, I, I got a little uh, chuckle and, and smile out of that tweet. Um, hopefully, he can be tweeting that more often uh, coming soon. But, um, the one thing I also do want to ask, you know, before we get maybe the broad ideas, and I probably didn't have this on the outline, but what do you make, like, how, what did you make of Levert's tenure last year? Do you have any expectations for him this year? Because it's such a tough spot, right? Like, I mean, he had a very serious health scare. Um, so, like, what did you think he did well during his time with the, the Pacers last year? How does he fit into the kind of the rest of this, this core, I guess? I mean, like, we just, I mean, you could say TJ's in the core, but we just talked about TJ maybe being available. So, like, how do you think he fits onto the current roster, which which could be a different roster in six months? But what kind of just kind of the platform for you to talk about Karis, who was kind of their biggest, you know, mid-season addition last year and even kind of, I mean, off-season addition as well, kind of one other year to get his feet wet and get further removed from that health scare. Right. And I don't think that we, I mean, anytime I wrote about him, I always felt like I needed to have the caveat of, you know, I have no idea what it feels like to go through a cancer treatment surgery and return to playing basketball. I know he discussed it on JJ Reddick's podcast, exactly how difficult and how bad he felt during that comeback. And then to hear like the wild story of uh, him coming back to one practice and scrimmaging for four minutes. And then Nate Bjorken coming up to him and telling him, well, you're starting tonight after one practice. And then he played 27 minutes in that game. And then he played the next game in Denver in altitude but you could kind of tell from a conditioning standpoint, you could tell from a conditioning standpoint throughout much of the, when he came back, that there was times like in transition where he just couldn't get back. So then it makes it, it's, it's difficult to fully evaluate what he was doing, but he and Sabonis had, you know, when the team was really injured and going through it there towards the back end, the two of them had really good chemistry in the two man game that I thought blossomed pretty well. He is such a herky jerky game. Like you just have to imagine how disorienting it has to be to defend him. It's like he plays basketball on a pogo stick. Like you're not exactly sure where his body's going to end up. 
um, from a shot profile standpoint, I think you want to see him shave back some of the shots that he takes in the non-restricted area and get fully to the rim, yeah. which is kind of the career story for him because he's going to have games where he's going to really hit those. And then other games is going to be like, okay, now he's five of 18. And it makes you question, like, he's kind of a guy who needs to be like a number one, number two option, but then can he consistently be good enough to be that? I mean, I think yeah. that's a fair question. I mean, he also struggled kind of strangely he was better against drop coverage because he likes to get to those spots and times when he was attacking switches, he had some issues, but again, I don't know how much of that was like, I'm just still trying to find my footing in isolation, yeah. but um, off the catch, he's, it, it's also a weird thing about his game that he's better shooting off the dribble than he is off the catch. I don't know if he just doesn't always have his feet quite set and ready for those types of shots, but like for his career, he's at like 33%. So it would be interesting for me to see, like you mentioned with TJ, because there is, I think that they're different. I mean, Karras is definitely a better facilitator than TJ Warren is, but there is going to be some overlap, I think, and mm -hmm. how you might use the two of them. So I'm, I, look forward to seeing what even one minute of basketball will look like once they finally get to play alongside each other. Defensively, I think that there are some concerns, like aside from the fact that the conditioning wasn't play, like he's pretty decent and has decent length when he's on ball, but off ball, he has quite a, a few issues, like to put mm -hmm. it kindly, some issues and knowing where he needs to be. And mm -hmm. like you mentioned that Wizards game earlier in his defense, it had to have been difficult going from the Nets and then coming to the Pacers where you're expected to be like switching like that game in the Wizards. There was times where he was in man coverage and the rest of the team was in zone. Like they would be in box and one and he'd be trailing his guy around. And like, so again, it's tough to evaluate because you're coming into like just this overly busy defensive system where effort is waning. Cause that was a whole nother part of it. Like, I think that, I think, Think that a lot of that just sucked the soul out of the team and by the end of the year it was like the effort on defense just wasn't there either so if they can find a scheme that actually fits the roster and you can get buy-in i think that he can improve on that end but he definitely has some weaknesses to shore up mm -hmm. yeah i think you mentioned kind of the herky-jerky style i think a few years ago i wrote about him i think i like said he kind of operates like he's on stilts almost um but if anyone was curious about the game we've now alluded to twice, it is May 3rd, uh, 2021, 154-141, the Wizards won. Uh, if you're looking for an entertaining game, honestly, to pass, pass a couple hours before we get back in the season, I would, I, would, I would recommend it. You might be a little little befuddled by some of the defense, but uh, it, was, it was an enjoyable game overall from a neutral observer Observers oh, it was not enjoyable. It was not <laughs> enjoyable. I'm a masochist. So if people want to read it, like it was right when it got reported that Nate Bjorker might be on the hot seat. And I was already in process on the article, but um, why the Pacers junk defenses are junk is an article that exists. <laughs> and I did break down all those possessions because it was so maddening, but yeah, it's a, it, it was a game for sure. Uh, Rui Hachimura had 27 bonus had uh 32 Karis had 33 you got 15 apiece from justin tj and get from the holiday brothers and tj mcconnell off the bench so uh wild game for sure uh and entertaining at the very least i don't know if it was enjoyable but i'll say entertaining um anyhow though and this is a really tough question because of all the moving parts that we've mentioned earlier but what is your perception of this team on the arrogant like how good do you think they could be and how good do you think maybe they will be, which I think are different, but also very tough exercises nonetheless. Yeah, that's, that's again, like there's so much unknown about them. Cause even, I mean, you even had like Kevin Pritchard making comments at the end of the season of like, or we don't have a vocal leader. 
And I generally tend to base my basketball takes on just basketball and what's mm-hmm. out there, because I think a lot of times, I mean, you could tell that my, Nate Bjorken was a micromanager and stubborn by the way they played basketball. So when you're going over for the billionth time against Russell Westbrook, you can kind of tell that the coach is stubborn. Like I didn't necessarily need to be told that. But when you hear that they don't have a vocal leader and that they like needed to find, I mean, he made like loose allusions to Udonis Haslam and how they needed like this veteran guy that wasn't necessarily going to play, but was going to provide like stability from the bench. And then they didn't address that. So I don't know if they just feel super confident that one of the people they challenged to be a vocal leader is going to do that. But I think that there's probably some degree of gray area in that respect and how that impacts the team moving forward in addition to the actual basketball. But when I thought that there was a chance that this team might start the season healthy and not like automatically be off to a tough start before it even starts. And like Edmund Sumner has now torn his Achilles breaking my heart and uh, some other stuff like that. Like if, if they can finish the season and they're healthy, I think, and some people have thought this is a wild take. I think they can be a playoff team. Like I think they could finish as high as like sixth in the Eastern conference, because like I said, there's just, there's going to be addition by subtraction by just making this coaching change. And I don't think that everything in the NBA is about coaching. I think talent certainly supersedes that in a lot of respects, but just creating a more streamlined system on both ends of the court and getting buy-in and, and having more of like, for lack of better terms, just a kumbaya sense than what was readable last year. I mean, it was a bizarre season for a lot of teams, but it was definitely bizarre for the Pacers. They were basically on like one leg in the grave by the end of the year with how many people they had out in addition to all of the behind the scenes drama. So I think they can be a playoff team, but I, if you told me at the end of the year that they finished 10th and were in the play in the tournament again, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised by that. Like you could tell me either, either outcome. And I would think that's a reasonable range. Yeah. I, you know, I think, Tom West and I did kind of our, we tiered the East about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago. And it was before, it was before the TJ Warren news. And of course, before the, the unfortunate Edmund, Edmund Sumner news, Edmund Sumner news as well. My goodness, I can't speak. Uh, too many M's and N's there in that, in that phrase. Um, I, I had them kind of in that, in that range of the, I think it was like the six to 10 range. I and mean, there's, there's a, there's a couple of clusters, I think right now, whether it's, you know, the Boston, Chicago, New York, Indiana is one tier that I had before, but obviously now, Maybe not the same tier, but yeah, I think they could be very because they have a lot of very good players and a very good coach. Uh, of course, you know, every coaching spot is different. You just don't, you don't know like if Carlisle is going to be the same level of coach as he is because he was in Dallas so long. Um, I know different players come in and out, but um, I thought they could have been pretty good. Obviously, like Sabonis has now been an All Star twice, and you know Miles Turner is quite good, and TJ Warren's good, but and Brogdon's been kind of at times in that just in that sub All Star you know conversation for the last couple of years, so. Uh, yeah, but the TJ Warren thing complicates matters, um, unfortunately, but kind of feels like the story of the Pacers right now. This is what the, are they three years in a row now, at least where they've been at some, they've at least been missing one or multiple key players in the postseason. It was Oladipo two years ago, Sabonis the year after in the bubble. Yep. Uh, and then last year, I don't think Turner played in the Turner and Levert didn't play in the, the two yeah. and TJ Warren. Yeah. They were down yeah. to three starters. Then, yeah. In the plan, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um yeah it's just really unfortunate I mean they've had some really good teams and that's that makes it tough but um shifting gears a little bit um you know the the Sixers and Pacers have been linked somewhat you know in conversation with Ben Simmons I know you did a very lengthy thread about a week ago about the pros and cons of you know a Ben Simmons you know fit on the on the Pacers um I recommend people checking that out if they're curious about maybe what what Ben might look like there conceptually um but what's like 
what are your thoughts on kind of those reports? I know it's kind of not, it has, it was a lot close. It was a lot more, uh, a lot louder, I think, you know, right immediately after the year, I think there was a report from Jason Dumas that uh, the Pacers have reached out and offered Brogdon in a first maybe or something along that framework early in the off season. But um, what do you make of kind of these inklings and kind of what are, what do you kind of perceive as the potential opportunities and maybe the, the drawbacks of, of Ben on this team? Right. So that is such, like, I feel like the Ben Simmons topic, first of all, is, is dominating all of NBA Twitter. I don't know if I would have tweets in my timeline anymore if they didn't include the words Ben Simmons. <laughs> but um, yeah, whenever that was first came out, and then I think Mark Stein mentioned it in his newsletter as well, that the Pacers were one of the teams that had kind of sniffed around to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't tend to write a lot of pieces about hypothetical trades just as like personal policy, but I do do a ton of research whenever those rumors come out in case those trades come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of those clips saved and I don't think I've ever felt more like Monte Ellis at the keyboard and the GIF (laughs) than when I'm thinking about Ben Simmons, because I can talk myself into it and then I can be like, no. So like at an entry point, I think I would need to know what are you getting for either Miles or Sabonis? Because I do not really have have a burning need to watch a diluted version of like Al Horford, Joel Embiid, <laughs> Tobias Harris, and Ben Simmons reincarnated with the Pacers. Um, I, I don't really need to see that. Nobody needs to see that again. I can, I and can then watch that year. And, yeah. And if, if you're not going to trade one of them, then I feel like Brogdon and Warren for the same reasons the Sixers would want Brogdon and Warren mm-hmm. are pretty critical to making this like whole puzzle fit together. Yeah. So that's why I said, I would need to know what you're going to get for one of those two bigs, assuming you flip them. But I think I'm probably going to be a little bit of an outlier. Cause I see all the time, like, well, Ben plus shooters. And I agree with that overall take. It's certainly better to have shooters around anybody than to not have shooters, but the Sixers had shooters. Like, yeah, that, that, and that's the whole, I, I, I know that like their volume was low. I think they were like 25th and three point rate last right. year, but that narrative especially came out right after the year ended. And I'm like, yeah, imagine if they had like two 40% three point shooters in their starting lineup or three, I think. And then Joel at 37%, I think Tobias was where I remember in 39%. Right. Tipped under, but yeah, I mean, yeah, anyhow, continue. I think it's a little bit of an overblown narrative. Yeah, because, I mean, Seth Curry's, like, leading the league in three-point percentage. Danny Green's, like, towards the top in corner three makes. And then, like you say, like, Joel and Tobias weren't at high volume, but they were hitting the shots. So when I started watching Ben, like, and got aside from, like, my burning anger that no one else was going over on double drags against him, and this wasn't an effective thing against other teams, um, I looked to watch what he did in the pick and pop in the half court. And there was only like, I did not need two hands to count the number of possessions that they were able to run a middle pick and pop with Ben Simmons and Joel that actually ended in a shot for Joel and beat. And so because people are going to go under him to that extent, like I just, I don't think it's a valid argument to be like, Oh, well, miles Turner can shoot. So therefore this is going to work. Like I've seen so many things that have said that like, well, if he goes to the Pacers, he'll be able to play with a stretch shooting big. And like, for some of the things that I said earlier, like miles can shoot. Like, I think he can be better than the 33% he just hit, but it's about the defensive perception. And maybe you don't care because Ben's going to be drawing that attention and getting to the lane, but then he's hitting 33% of those shots. So then I, I I get 1% sub one point possession play time. It's not, yeah, good like that's and then and then you're not going to be having Brogdon who hits those shots or TJ Warren who hits those shots. You're going to have Karis LeVert, who I mentioned earlier, has never been super proficient off the catch from three. And you're going to be needing a lot, in my opinion, if, if you made that trade, like 
I think that they're already confident in Chris Duarte's ability to be game ready and some form of the rotation, but a lot of weight would be on his shoulders in order for mm-hmm. that to work, in my opinion, because you can do running slips with Ben. I think that works a little bit better than the pick and pop or, you know, if you, if you could convince him, which is something that I don't know. I mean, I assume that – I don't think that Doc Rivers and Brett Brown were never like, oh, it might be valuable. We've never thought that it would be valuable to use Ben at the four spot. Like, that's never crossed our minds. They, they, like, they tried it – I mean, Brett tried it very, very adamantly in the playoffs once two right. over two years ago, and Ben's just never really, you know – being I don't want to say embrace it because I don't know his mindset, but he's never been very good at it, unfortunately. Right. And the one possession I have in that thread, like he did it against the Wizards, but it's Seth Curry running the pick and the pick and roll and both defenders go at Seth Curry. So then Ben's open to make that play. And then both Wizards, for whatever inexplicable reason, both come off the weak side and 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 drop on Ben, which I mean, this is kind of one of my talking points in general. And I think that the short roll, like if I have to choose between the pick and roll, the pick and pop and the short roll, I think the short roll gives you the most options of anything. But if it's a guy like Ben Simmons, I don't really know why you wouldn't just be like, Hey, go ahead and make, try to make that floater or that pull up too. We're going to stay on the corner. So I think if it was a larger sample size where he's running at the four all the time, that that's something that needs to be talked about. So to make a long story short, my, my thought process then became, okay, then we're at a spot where what could the Pacers possibly do better than what the Sixers are already doing. Mm-hmm. And while I think, like, I think we all know that Joel Embiid is more dominant than Sabonis on both ends of the court. But if you're going to pick a guy that's going to, I don't even want to use the word mask, but make up for some of what Sabonis lacks as a rim protector and it's going to be a defensive fit, I think that you probably couldn't create a better player than Ben Simmons from a defensive standpoint. Offensively, Sabonis is a better facilitator out of the post than Embiid Mm -hmm. is, even though Embiid improved in that area. So I saw a lot of clips where, you know, Joel wants to kind of get it to the opposite corner out of those Mm face-ups instead of seeing Ben right under the basket. Sabonis makes that pass. Sabonis, like, Miles averaged not very many touches at all last year. He was clearly fifth in the food chain, and Sabonis assisted Miles Turner more times last year than Embiid assisted Ben Simmons. So, so... I have some some faith that that could work. I have faith that you could use Ben Simmons and, and his speed on the weak side, and you can maybe run two-man game with Sabonis and Levert, and Sabonis as a roller would draw attention that would really unleash that. I mean, Ben can be pretty breathtaking as a cutter when he wants to be and when he unlocks that speed. Mm-hmm. Um, from the dunker standpoint, the other thing that I look at is, is if it's Sabonis, if that's the five you go with, you could use Sabonis in the short roll and he could throw lobs to Ben in the dunker spot in a way that the Sixers probably weren't unlocking a ton of mm. in that same sense. And I also think, you know, which again, I don't even want to sound so arrogant. It's like, why didn't Brett Brown and Doc Rivers think of this? I'm sure they have. <laughs> but like putting him in the corner as a non-shooter, he's not going to shoot that. But the one thing you gain is, which Rick Carlisle does a lot, like most of the time, if guys aren't involved in actions, they're expected to be setting flare screens or screening for the wing for that guy to fade to the corner. Mm-hmm. I think you could more be using Ben in that way. And again, like maybe he just doesn't do it. Maybe they- he just ends up in no man's land. And what's and, weird What's weird is they did that in the very first preseason game last year when Doc took over, I think, for the Celtics. They ran a couple of plays where Ben was in the corner, but it just didn't come to fruition very often, which I thought was really strange. So I definitely agree that's something you know, I'd love to see more of. But as you said, like, I'm sure they've tried it, so we don't know. Is it something Ben's not comfortable with? Is it something they don't think like? I don't know, but I, I agree it could be used more often. But they, but I remember, for, like, first game of the year, I did, like, an article about, like, yeah, look, finally we're seeing more of this, and then – 
here we are nine months later and it never really happened consistently. But but I agree, it's something that should happen more theoretically. And Nate Bjorkren even too, like Edmund Sumner improved as a shooter last year, but teams didn't respect him as a shooter. So they use like banana cuts where essentially like you're lifting out back behind that defender and making use of opportune cuts from the corner. And that, that was effective for the Pacers. I think you could use Ben in that same way. So those are kind of the main things that I look at of like, okay, that's, that's some, those are some things that you could theoretically do better. I mean, Sabonis and Simmons were both top 15 and assisted threes. Mm -hmm. So like, while neither one of them, like they're not going to get respected as shooters, but my main argument would be like, yeah, nobody's probably going to guard them beyond the, the free throw line. But the reality is a lot of people don't guard miles Turner behind the free throw line beyond the free throw line either. Like he's not driving that many closeouts. So, um, I don't know that I'm completely sold on it, but I would definitely need to know what other pieces you're getting if you were to move Miles or Sabonis in order for me to be on board. Because if it was just that that swap alone, I, I, I don't know that the Pacers would necessarily be better than that for what you're paying Ben. Like, I think I would almost probably like the Sixers. At this point, I, would, I assume that most Sixers fans would probably be like, yeah, sign me up for Malcolm Brogdon and TJ Warren. Am I wrong? No, not. I mean, I, I, I'd cover the Sixers and I would say I would, if that was the deal, I would say I would, I would hate it for the Pacers and love it for the Sixers because you would just, you would gain a lot of infrastructure around Joel and more scoring in the half court and the Sixers would be, the Pacers would be like who, who dribbles from the right. inbound to the post when, I mean, Delmas can dribble a little bit, but yeah, I, I would absolutely when I think that'd be a win for the, the Sixers, but I, I don't think it makes well, yeah, I don't I mean, think it makes the Pacers better at all. I don't think it makes yeah, because it, it makes you make another good point. Because even if you're like, okay, well, they'll move Sabonis and Ben's gonna play the four and do some of the hub type stuff, then Karis Levert's your main primary ball handler, and people are already going under Karis last year. So then it's just kind of like the inverse reverse situation. Like you're just you're still having to combat that and you know, at least Sabonis in the half court, like he did finish around the rim better than Ben did, which is kind of interesting because Ben, Ben is already like passing out of the more difficult shots. So you would expect his, his field goal percentage in those instances to be higher, but his touch and stuff just hasn't improved mm -hmm. and he's not drawing free throws in those settings to the degree that Sabonis is either. So especially when you're only paying some bonus $18 million a year. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, that's the issue is like, it's Ben is so right-hand dominant around the room keeping a lot of smart defenders know that. So they sit on that right side. And then also he doesn't want to get fouled or he avoids contact. I don't know if it's, he doesn't want to get fouled, but he avoids contact and that leads to an, an absence of, of drawing fouls. But, but yeah, the, the interesting thing about kind of, you mentioned that I think Sabonis would do a better job of hitting Ben in that dunker spot area is it because like when Ben was a rookie, Joel hit that pass a little more, at least more than he did last year, but he was just, he never made it last year. Like all, like I mean, when you have a couple people and I that cover the Sixers, we had like a running thing where we, we would point out when he made it or when he didn't make it. Um, and so I don't know if it was a like, Joel just didn't want to make that pass anymore or uh, whatever happened. But it definitely is a, a skill of his that had regressed at some point. And Joel is not a very good interior pass. Like he's much better, as you said, getting it after shooters. Um, but it was weird to kind of see that regression because I know you pointed it out and other people point out throughout the year. But I remember. I remember writing a piece, you know, four years ago when, when Ben was a rookie about like look at the connection they're making. You know, Joel like stands at the mid post and Ben's in the dunker spot and he he passes it to him when he gets sealed off and they make things happen. So yeah, I think everything you mentioned is like yeah, there are benefits too, especially defensively in, in certain aspects, because you know, Ben is such a hyper mobile player at 6'10, 6'11, um, and just can guard basically one. 1.3 through 4.5 I don't know exactly you can't guard can't guard Darren Fox but you can't guard uh Joel but he can guard kind of a lot of players in between there 
Um, so yeah, I think that's really interesting. And yeah, so I, I tend to not think there's a deal that makes sense for both sides here. I think there's a deal that absolutely makes sense for the Sixers. Guys who can create off the dribble is, is what they need. Um, but I think the point T made about uh, like the idea of a spacer. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like miles Turner spaces the floor, and, but like, but Joel commands much more defensive attention offensively than, than Ben does. So I get like, I think really the only two guys that would maybe be better fits for Ben at the five would be Jokic and Cat. And, yep. and, and that, and like the nuggets aren't going to trade for, for him. And maybe, I mean, maybe this, the wolves do, it seems like more than likely the wolves are the, the most prominent suitor, but yeah, this idea that like Joel is not a good fit for, for Ben doesn't really make sense to me because Joel had just had one of the best, like big man scoring seasons in, in recent history uh and did a lot of things to kind of try and acquiesce ban and they still had struggles in the playoffs so that's to say joel was totally absolved of any struggles but yeah i think that's a good point that joel commands attention there um because teams don't want to leave a guy who averages 25 a game open uh, a little more a little easier to the guy who averages 12 or 13 in miles's case leave him open so um i think you like i really enjoyed kind of hearing your thoughts on that anything you want to add about this just anything we've talked about today before we part ways um appreciate you uh, taking the time today yeah, I think the Denver community wasn't very happy with me because I agree with you. That's what I that was how I ended the thread. I essentially think that like Ben's personal best fit, I think, is Jokic. If you're looking for a guy that's gonna be able to unlock, you know, you can do inverse pick and rolls. I think Jokic could find him as a cutter even better than the things I mentioned with Sabonis. He can space around him in transition, all these different things, but you know, I'm not sure that the Nuggets really are interested in giving up like Michael Porter Jr. to mm-hmm. add Ben Simmons to their collection, but I do agree with you that I think that's their, but his best fit. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think Minnesota is a good fit too. I think that's what's going to most likely happen. It's not just speculation on my part, no source in here. Nobody take what I'm saying as, as, uh, <laughs> as, uh, as canon, but, uh, but yeah, uh, Caitlin, really appreciate you hopping on today. If anyone's curious where you can follow her, I know we've mentioned kind of find you on Twitter. Um, that is at C2 underscore Cooper. Um, and then where can people find your work? Yeah, I'm, I'm predominantly indie cornrows. Occasionally I have some freelance pieces. One is in its infancy, has been in its infancy for about a month now that's still <laughs> trying to get pushed through if I can convince them to publish it. So we'll see. But um, yeah, generally at Indie Cornrows, which is SB Nation's Indiana Pacers site. Awesome. Uh, well, once again, check out all of Caitlin's work. Um, the Pacers are a funky team. They've got a lot of interesting and kind of unknown variables, which uh is makes for interesting discussion even if it's uh you have to make the cop out on the caveat that we don't know exactly what's going on but um for everyone listening um please review rate and subscribe or read your podcasts um, feel free to give me constructive criticism um we'll be a little taking a little bit of time off until the season starts but uh in the meantime stay happy stay healthy stay safe we'll talk to all of you again soon